the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's conversation, I do just want to mention that if you're enjoying the content and you feel so inclined, I do have a Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing me a dollar there. I am trying to get um, 60 additional patrons before the end of the year. But without further ado, I'm very excited. I have uh, today's guest is A.M. Gitlitz. He is a co-host of the Antifada podcast, author of I Want to Believe, Facadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism, appropriately published and released on, on April 20th, 2020. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. The, the April 20th was a total coincidence, <laughs> but a, a very, very happy accident for sure. Right, uh, that's, that's hilarious. That's, that's amazing. Where I'd kind of like to start off, I think, it, maybe preliminarily just discussing the sort of power of memes, particularly, I think, in, in Posadas's case, memes are kind of a big reason why, you know, you and I are here probably, you know, speaking, I had no idea who Posadas was until maybe three or four years ago when I saw like a, a hoaxa Posadas meme. Oh, no. <laughs> Classic combo. Right, exactly. Um I guess my way forth into the left was more so through philosophy than like Marxism and sort of the Marxist tradition. So that's a big blind spot for me in terms of, you know, theory and, and history and so forth. So this is, uh, this is totally new as far as, I haven't even think I've done a Leninist show at all. So it's funny that I'm doing Posadas before Lenin. I mean, I think it's interesting that people are interested in Posadism as as a way into Trotskyism and then Leninism broadly, because he was one of the stranger and uh, certainly after the early 60s, a very inconsequential figure in the history of Trotskyism. Uh, Yet today, he's most of the world, at least the speaking world, much more famous than any of the other important Trotskyists of his time. And in fact, through Google Analytics, there are times when he was actually more searched for than Trotsky himself, which is in a, like a disgusting thing that people are looking for, <laughs> right, looking yeah. to this comical character instead of the like the the more important historically referent point to it. But I also think that maybe there's something interesting about that, something useful about the way people engage in history and in humor, and yeah. that's kind of the the broader goal of the book, besides just writing a history of what Posadism actually was. Right. I think it's kind of amusing for me because like one of my favorite thinkers um, on the more or less the left is, uh, is Sterner, who is also a big meme. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I don't know who's a bigger meme, Posadas or Sterner, but they both share that kind of, I think, resurrection via meme over the last three or four years, five years, perhaps. Similarity between the two is besides the fact that there's just like this kind of singular image that gets like 
spread around and like a couple of phrases that are used as stand-ins for the, the rest of the philosophy is that uh, Stirner has really been immortalized through him being polemicized by Marx and Engels. So this was, this was like a character that kind of needed to be attacked and like overcome by the broader socialist movement. And that was true for Posadas as well. He was in his own time attacked by most other Trotskyists and anti-Trotskyists, anti-communists. There were, you know, cartoons and satires of him at the time, but it was always, it was always like mocking him as a way of defending their own positions, whether you were a Trotskyist trying to defend your own choice of weird sect, trying to make your own sect look not so weird or not so marginal, or if you're alone, um, attacking Trotskyism and the left general using Posadas as like a particularly ridiculous example. Yeah, may, maybe there is something similar about how Marx and Engels used Stirner to attack the rest of the young Hegelian milieu. I, I'm not exactly sure if that's a fair co- comparison, but there are both extreme figures that have kind of survived and continue to inspire people because of how extreme they are. Right. Although I would say that Stirner is a, a much more serious thinker. It is funny though. I think that that kind of weird meme legacy that they share. And so I'd even talked to one of, uh, one of my guests was like a kind of like a Stirner scholar that really kind of stumbled on him by accident. And is like now in one of the Facebook uh, Sterner meme pages that I thought was really amusing. <laughs> well, you got to have Jacob Blumenfeld on. He wrote uh, All Things Are Nothing. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, hunting for my favorite Sterner meme uh, earlier, and I came across that book, actually. It's a great book. I, I didn't really, I've read uh, parts of Ego in His Own, and I didn't really get it. But after reading that book, I it was kind of a good way into it. Aside from the kind of connection via meme, I, well, I guess it's part of it is this Sort of, yeah, I get the sense that Posadas is really like this whole kind of imagery that we have of him with the nuclear war and the dolphin element is, you know, this kind of fringe element of, of his grouping. But some of it is, like you mentioned earlier, stories, things that kind of are looking to discredit his, uh, you know, the fourth international Posadas. And I think Sterner has some of that as well. Like there's this kind of like meme understanding of who he is that gets kind of painted with this very broad brush. So I think they share that as well. Something that really overall struck me about the book is it was, and it was very sobering and and kind of really sad and so forth to kind of see Posadas so sure that at these so many different points throughout his life and throughout the book, he's anticipating the revolution to come. And it just, (laughs) all of these things are happening uh, in terms of you know, movements in uh, Argentina and South America, broadly speaking, the, the globe, that revolution never seems to come, I think is kind of a, a sobering reminder. Um, and particularly in reading kind of the, the state reaction to a lot of the movements and, and moments and protests and so forth that you cover throughout the book, it's so eerily similar to what we see kind of happening, you know, within the last, the events of the last month or so with uh, the Black Lives Matter protests and so forth that kind of exploded out of nowhere. That's a really important aspect of what makes Posadas relevant is that um, uh, I think a lot of people assume that he's being mocked because of his interest in UFOs and nuclear war and dolphins. But I think that actually those elements are why people are sincerely interested in him. Yeah. That, that intrigues people and they kind of like it. They like that there was a guy who thought about these things and wrote about these things and it was a little bit weird. Uh, what they make fun of him for is the same reason they make fun of any old Orthodox communist is that he really believed in something that didn't happen. He believed that there's going to be a revolution within his lifetime. 
that you know the the Bolshevik system of communism would regenerate and spread the world. And he, he wrote an essay in uh, 76 that I quote in the book about how within 30 years time, not only will we have achieved communism, but there would be no more irony or, or humor anymore uh, because those were products of class struggle. And we would be so deep into communist society that there would no longer be any class struggle and no more need for irony. So not only would we not be still making fun of Posadas as he was at that time uh, by the 2000s, uh, but we wouldn't be making fun of anybody because there'd be no humor. So that's like just kind of an obviously ironic aspect of it is that he really believed. And um, that is the most ridiculous thing about him is that the thing that made him the most common is that he believed uh, that revolution was coming. And then the, the question is, how do we believe or what do we believe in or is it is it wrong to believe you know right somewhat see kind of a parallel in the sense of what i i would sort of slide in um climate catastrophe or i've been calling it climate holocaust as this maybe stand in for what posadas felt that nuclear war would do for the possibility of a you know some type of communist or socialist or anarchist future for us it feels like maybe that <laughs> like that's my that's been my sort of theory is that mother nature in the guise of the guise of climate change would be the ultimate kind of the vanguard of a of a new revolution whether we like it or not you know what i mean the the circumstances on the ground would just make capitalism as it exists impossible to function and so that potentiality you know opens up perhaps a space for us? Well, this is the idea of catastrophism, uh, which is, uh, you know, it predates Marxism, but there's a Marxist element of catastrophism, which is the idea that capitalism as an objective process will create these contradictions that become so catastrophic that it will break down or collapse. And only then will it be possible for the working class to take power. You know, this is what uh, the, the Second International put forward in their Erfurt program. They believed in uh, the breakdown theory of this uh, capitalism me mechanistically breaking down. Uh, Marx said things like this in his own time about how crisis is the only thing that makes revolutions possible. Lenin believed this to some extent moving into World War One, he, he thought that uh, World War One would be so catastrophic that it would lead right. to revolution. And, you know, of course, he was he was right in a way. But also he understood that it, it took these subjective forces of uh, the vanguard party pushing the, the Russian proletariat towards revolution. So there was a very subjectivist moment around 1917. Uh, that countered this objectivist, catastrophist thinking that uh, everything was kind of outside of our hands and we had to wait for the right moment. Uh, but then shortly after the, uh, th this revolutionary wave that begins in 1917 starts rolling back, there, there begins to be the, a return to that catastrophist thinking and the common turn, the, the new, the third communist international of of Lenin and then later Stalin said that capitalism was in its death throes. And so the task of the Soviet Union came to be preserving this uh, sort of island of, of uh, socialist experimentation, social society, revolutionary society, waiting for capitalism to finally die. Uh, and Trotsky in, in, in the 30s, leading up until World War II, believed that World War II being so much worse than World War I would be this objective events that would allow finally Bolshevism to return and, and international revolution to be possible. 
and he and this is why he founded the Fourth International, even though it was a very small movement. He thought that the Fourth International would be like the Bolsheviks there to seize on this catastrophe to to lead the proletariat towards international revolution. And this was his big prediction. But he also had another prediction, which was that if if this wasn't the case, if World War II did not lead to world revolution, if one of the powers, imperialism, fascism, or Stalin uh, succeeded, that we would be in a, an age of collapse, uh, of, of the slow uh, eclipse of civilization. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, it's fair to say that Trotsky was right, just not about his optimistic prediction, right. <laughs> about his more pessimistic prediction. Uh, and we are in this, this, this prolonged collapse of civilization. That's why it's so hard to take these ideas of traditional Marxist-Leninist revolution seriously today, because Trotsky was one of the first people to understand that those conditions were rapidly disappearing. Right. I think it's interesting to contextualize nuclear weapons and, and what that must have been like to be someone like, you know, of Posadas's age that kind of saw this transition to kind of like the early, I guess, a more mature kind of industrialized, like things going from like the automobile to the space, you know, atomic bombs, um, satellites, Sputnik, et cetera, like the space age, all within one lifetime. Like that's a significant amount of technological progress to sort of base that optimism on in, in some sense. But at this, like the other side of that is the, I think we're kind of habituated to the existence of nuclear weapons. Like it's not something that we think about on a daily basis, even though, you know, so much of that Cold War nuclear apparatus still sort of hangs in the balance and, and is, you know, ultimately potentially a threat to the, you know, the existence of, of, of mankind. Um, I think it's, it's interesting how that, that kind of distinction works. It's like people that are born, you know, our generation don't think about that. Whereas I think it's a lot more up in your face in terms of it's a significant paradigm shift from a rocket versus a nuclear warhead or series of them that could literally wipe out all life on the planet. I mean, that's a significant existential, I think, crisis for humanity. And so it's interesting to see, you know, you can kind of understand why Posadas would have been attracted to these positive elements, like, because it felt like society was kind of moving in this very sort of rapid pace that has, in many ways, kind of kind of died out over the last, you know, once neoliberalism kind of hit, it seems like there's been a weird stasis. It seems like that, but I, you know, I don't <laughs> think that the nuclear threat has uh, diminished at all. Oh, definitely um, I mean, uh, there, there were days during the missile crisis when a lot of people expected nuclear war to happen. A lot of people on right. you know, both sides wanted it to happen. Passas was not alone in wanting there to be a preemptive nuclear strike. That, although that was a very important political position, that the Posadists had was a preemptive nuclear strike. Uh, it was not unique to them. They were just right. sort of the most chauvinistic Fervent, yeah. about it as Trotskyists in the early 60s. So that was their niche. That's, uh, you know, they're made fun of for that today, but they were not alone in that. And, then, you know, they were totally wrong. Like, this was a horrible idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but you're totally right. Like, this was a major paradigm shift at like at the end of World War II and in the following years as nuclear weapons were um, the technology spread to the Soviet Union and then later to China. It became clear that the next world war would be the last world war. But nonetheless, uh, the Posadists following that, that uh, initial 
prediction of Trotsky that there would be this war to end all wars that would lead to international revolution, uh, you know, holding to that, uh, that, that prediction as if it were a prophecy. And this was the, the majority tendency of the, the Fourth International in the 50s. It was not just the Posadists. They expected that nuclear war to happen and that communism would win in the aftermath. And throughout the 50s, for a number of reasons, most Trotskyists backed off of this idea, but they continued to hold this idea until Posadas died in 81. Uh, But today, the few Posadists who remain still believe that um, the spread of, for example, bioweapons, things, you know, know, COVID is, is not likely to be a bioweapon, but things like COVID designed in labs or um, the result of industrial agriculture, like swine flu, could be, could lead to the sort of devastation that would lead to a, a revolutionary situation. Pisaas's son, Leon Cristalli, has predicted things like that. Uh, and, and also, in the course of the pandemic, the Posadists, the contemporary Posadists, have talked about these war games that are ongoing between the EU and NATO and, and Russia that involve the deploying nuclear weapons. A lot of what's going on with the Space Force and the new space age is about missile defense systems that are called missile defense systems, but they're designed to allow the United States to launch a successful nuclear first strike that would make uh, you know, Russia or China incapable of responding, which is, it's madness. It, it, it won't it would work. There would be nuclear winter. All or almost life would be destroyed. So you know, these threats still exist, and we're still in the era where the people in power um, are certainly able to destroy the world uh, in a number of ways, but seem unable of to not do it. It is interesting, too, that you kind of feel, it seems like there's potential that there could be a new Cold War with China, the way that tensions are ramping up with the trade war. And then I think, again, as, as climate change kind of progresses, then I think that maybe is also a potential catalyst for this, you know, this World War III that, that everyone, that Trotsky was predicting back in the 50s, except now the the modus operandi is going to be climate change and not nuclear holocaust. Yeah, climate and tolerance of all of the tensions that were already there. The main one, uh, arguably, is the falling rate of profit. The fact that there's just less wealth to go around and there's an accelerated need for that wealth to be disproportionately distributed to a, a smaller and smaller group of people. Uh, and there, you know, there's, there's less... Uh, like legitimate work for the mass world. People have to do these really shitty informal jobs and there's less money in those jobs. So, you know, the the same sort of crises uh, that perpetuated throughout the interwar period um, that led to the, you know, the the fascistic reaction to socialism uh, still exist today. And and, uh, certain ideologies arise, like certain right populist ideologies arise to confront or try to manage that dissatisfaction. But also, although we don't have a international party uh, today, like there was in following 1917, we have an international revolutionary uh, um, wave. That's, I don't know if you can call it a movement, but there's these uprisings uh, in the fall in, in Chile and Ecuador. Haiti, Puerto Rico, uh, in the Middle East, in North Africa, in Hong Kong, um, you know, too many places to list right. right now. You have these uprisings against neoliberalism 
against authoritarianism, and they're not super politically coherent, but these are common people struggling for their lives against this multinational, uh, like, uh, death drive, essentially. I thought it was interesting. I, I, well, I guess I'm sort of ignorant of South American political history as a whole, but I thought it was kind of interesting as, as more of an anarchist that I, I didn't realize that Argent, Argentina was such a hotbed for anarchism in the early 20th century. I thought that was kind of kind of cool and something I didn't realize as a bit of history I learned. Yeah, that was one of my favorite things to research about this book as well, um, is that uh, because Argentina was uh, sort of an afterthought for colonialism and, and uh, coming into the uh, 20th century and, you know, from like the 1850s to, to early 1910s, they basically didn't have any workers there. They had, you know, exterminated or driven off most of the indigenous population. And the only people that were left were these kind of backward Spanish colonizers. So they had to import millions and millions of Europeans. So Argentina had the biggest immigration wave after the United States. Uh, But unlike the United States, there wasn't many people there. So almost the entire country was foreign born. A lot of them were, uh, you know, very poor people from Italy and Spain, and they they were very quick to radicalize. And the patriotic ideology of you know Ar- the Argentinian nation just didn't make any sense to them because they weren't Argentinian; they were right. they were immigrants. So they th- those that wanted to stay, that wanted to you know make a new society there, were very attracted to the ideas of anarchism. Not only because direct action was a particularly effective means of the workers getting what they wanted, getting better condition, being get better conditions. Um, but also because like Argentina didn't make sense as this nation state. It, it was just like this, this like region that could easily be got like the, the very small oligarchy could easily just be uh, suppressed. And the, the whole region could be taken over by workers um, in, in Buenos Aires and Montevideo and Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. It was a very plausible thing at the time. And um, between maybe 1900 and 1910, anarchism was if you were a radical worker, if you were a revolutionary worker, you were probably an anarchist. And this was the this was where Pisatis' parents, who were shoemakers from Italy, uh, became radicalized. But around 1910, there began to be this incredible state repression, um, culminating with the, the Semana Tragica in 1917 is one of Pisas's first memories as a child. And, uh, and through that, um, you know, through killing and imprisoning and deporting tens of thousands of anarchists, anarchism was sort of, sort of put in the same place as it was everywhere else in the world right. um, as, a, as a more minoritarian movement. And Pisatis and his parents became socialists and they, they joined the Socialist Party. Uh, but for a time, anarchism, if you were a revolutionary, you know, this was before the Communist Party, right. uh, you, were, you were likely to be an anarchist. And that's something anarchists kind of forget today is that there yeah. was, you know, uh, at a time it was a movement. It was a movement of millions and millions of workers. Pretty wild to see. I didn't anticipate that. I like I said, just a totally ignorant of, of the history of the region. Sadly, to switch gears a little bit, I'm I'm curious a little bit about just your whole process and, and experience of writing the book, and kind of curious to start out with, like, where did you? How did you first stumble upon Posadas? Like, at what point? What was that kind of gestation? Well, I, I was always interested in immortalism. Uh, somebody once told me, uh, maybe 10 years ago, about this tendency in the Bolshevik party that, that believed that we should abolish death. And I always thought that was like a really interesting thing that 
communist had such futurist, utopian, quasi-messianic views. Um, so I researched that, and, you know, along with that futurism, there was this cosmism, and Posadas was always considered to be this, you know, cosmist thinker, although you probably likely didn't know very much about the historical Bolshevik communism, co- cosmism. Um, it, it sort of, it, it may have been a coincidence that they had the same ideas, actually. But he, he sort of became this, this avidor of cosmism, along with Bogdanov and Lunacharsky and uh, Tsiolkovsky. So he was someone who people had a lot of uh, imagination about, a lot of myths about. Became, he was like this folkloric figure. And so a friend of, of mine and I wanted to write like a sci-fi story about him, like some sort of conspiratorial Illuminati trilogy-like fiction about, you know, this is a pretty interesting story that hasn't actually been seriously researched by anyone um, in the United States or elsewhere. And I, I met some, some older academics and uh, publishers who thought it would be a great idea to write about it. And they encouraged me to, to go for it. And I, I spent two or three years going to archives and interviewing people and, you know, putting together the story. What was the, for you, what was the most surprising element of pos- that you uncovered while researching for the book, if you have one? <laughs> uh, the, the most surprising element of, of Posadas, like the, the history of Posadism? Yeah, or his life, or really just kind of any, anything in that kind of orbit. But well, one thing that I found out about very early on that I was really intrigued by was uh, in a, a memoir of one of the Italian militants, uh, from the, the Italian section of the Posadas International was that he kicked everybody out, all of the old intellectuals who founded the movement with him in, the, in the, the late 40s. He kicked them all out around 74 and replaced all of them with these young militants who hadn't read very much Marx or Lenin or Trotsky. They were just Posadists. So he could basically tell them whatever they want, like brainwash them in any way he wanted. And, and that, that's when it really became this sort of a leader cult. It, it, it was before, but this was really, he was totally unchecked at this right. point. And it was a very small movement that looked a lot like um, a, a typical cult on a commune. And there was some rumors from some of the things I was reading that during this time, he, you know, he also kicked out his wife, um, who he founded the movement with, and got married or had a partnership with a, a young militant woman. And they had a daughter together. And this daughter was going to be like the messianic heir of the movement. So Posadas, perhaps knowing that he would die at some point, uh, wanted to train a successor. And he wanted to keep it in the family. So this was like the star child of the Posadas <laughs> movement. And um, I, I really wanted to know what this was about, like what happened to this person if she's still in play in the Posadas movement. Um, and I, I was able to figure out a lot of the story from, from archives, from internal documents, uh-huh. uh, but I wasn't able to, to figure out everything. Who do you, were there any, did you actually get to speak with any living, like people that knew Posadas in real life? Um, who was the most interesting person that you were able to speak to, I guess, as, as part of your research, if anyone? In uh, Montevideo, I was able to talk to the secretary of the Montevideo, uh, the, the Uruguayan uh, Posadists, uh, who was still an active party, very small. And he didn't really want to talk to me, but Uruguayan people are just really nice. And so he couldn't help himself. So we talked <laughs> for a few hours and 
he told me about Posadas. I was able to talk. To, I, I tried really hard to talk to his son, Leon Cristali, who's now the leader of the Posadas International, the secretary. Uh, he did not want to talk to me, but I was able to talk to um, an Italian who was in the movement, who was very helpful, and uh, Luciano Dondaro. And I was able to talk to uh, Guillermo Almira, who recently passed away who founded the party in Argentina with him in 47. Oh, very and cool. I was able to talk to a, uh, a, a guy named Hector Menendez from uh, Cordoba, Argentina, who was part of the, the working class core of Posadism in the, um, in the 50s and, and 60s. The Posadists had uh, cells in different auto factories and, and uh, industrial centers in the center of Argentina, and they were very influential. They were very important working class movement uh, with, you know, within the workers movement. And so he had a perspective that was totally different. You know, he was, he was there for the UFO talk and all of that weird stuff, but his perspective was, you know, he was just a trade union militant. And it, um, so it was very important to get his perspective as well. Uh, but I was not able to talk to anyone who was part of the movement after he kicked everybody out. Uh, I was able to talk to his daughter very briefly over email, but she was just not interested at all. And, and, uh, and she asked me to just like, you know, try to keep her out of it as much as possible, which I'm respecting. Right. Uh, but bes besides that, those people are still, uh, for the most part, keeping it a secret. What, what happened at that point? Do you have any advice? So I have, um, I'm kind of working on a similar project myself. And I'm, I'm curious if you have any advice. So what I'm in the preliminary stages of is doing this kind of interpersonal history, um, rivalries and like little personal anecdotes for kind of like the, uh, the post-structuralist thinkers in France, so like Deleuze and Watari and Lacan and so forth. And I'm just curious if you have any advice because <laughs> I'm just getting started in the research phase. I, I got a lot of help from reading memoirs of people who were around the, the movement, um, including just, you know, other Trotskyist leaders and militants. Uh, so I, I imagine there's a lot of those and, and those always have little anecdotes you can pull out. Um, aside from that, I know a lot of that stuff is archived. Uh, so that probably means taking a trip to France. And, you know, if you read French, you can, you can, you know, photograph that stuff and, and go through it. And I, you know, I'm not a, a trained historian, um, basically through a combination of going to archives, going through that stuff, um, finding other stuff that's been published already on the subject and interviewing people, uh, you can piece together a narrative, um, uh, you know, also using a, like a concept of how to write history, like a historiography. Um, right. I, I, I read some E.H. Carr that helped me out. And uh, that, that basically was um, how I was able to put it together, like making, a, you know, using those facts and those, those stories and talking to people and asking them questions. To, to clarify what went on and, and just building a narrative that way. Um, that's how I did it. And, you know, I didn't go to school to do it. I hope it came out uh, pretty accurate and like a, a good story. Um, but uh, that's, uh, that's, I think, is how it's done. No, I think you did a, you did a great job of like, it was a really balanced. Um, you had some like good flourish in your prose and some kind of some good, like good stuff there, but also like pretty, pretty in-depth in terms of the amount of, you know, historical research, like it was pretty apparent. So I think you did, did a great job of kind of balancing that kind of like creative life, creative like prose style with, you know, the, the facts and just kind of all this uh, interesting stuff. I can't imagine it must have been difficult to just kind of figure out where do you, how do you carve this narrative out of this man's life that seems so, so bizarre looking back at it. 
Yeah, thanks. I, I'm I'm glad you you you, uh, you thought it was working out. I at a certain point, uh, you know, I had read enough that the <laughs> the narrative of his life, like the rising action of him rising through yeah. the ranks of the international, to the point where he splits, you know, his fourth international from the rest of the international, to the point where he, you know, is denounced by Castro and his cadres start quitting, and then it just descends into this cult. It was just a clear narrative structure. Um, with his reemergence in memes uh, being this kind of like fascinating, ironic right. turn at the very end. And it just seems so obvious to me. Um, so I, I don't know if it's so easy for everybody's. Right, project. <laughs> I'm kind of curious. Um, so there's another out there thinker to some degree that uh, I don't know if you knew this, but Watari was a, a young Trotskyist. He was a member of the young. I did not know uh, that. Yeah, it was the Young Revolutionaries Movement, which I think was the youth wing of the Internationalist Communist Party, mm-hmm. which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, was the biggest uh, Trotskyist organization in France at the time. And they were, I think, part of the, the Fourth International as well. So maybe we right. can talk a little bit about Trotskyism and maybe some of the larger tenets, because I'm thinking I know permanent revolution. You know, I didn't know a lot about Trotskyism coming into right. I, I'm not a Trotskyist myself, um, and, and the more I've read of Trotskyism hasn't convinced me to be, become a, a Trotskyist. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do have a lot of respect for certain elements of Trotskyism, namely the the dedication that Trotskyists have for their program, um, the the discipline of the Leninist Party structure. I think you know, although it opens up for a lot of abuse of membership and uh, megalomania of leadership. I think it's also a, a, a sort of reasonable way to make sure every uh, a movement goes in a certain direction and, and moves efficiently and powerfully towards uh, relevance. It's based on Trotsky's transitional program, which I think is still a useful document that was uh, written to describe how uh, milit- revolutionaries who were at a major party or outside of a revolutionary situation can gain influence, gain power, and push towards a revolutionary situation. And this is what Trotskyists had to do in in different situations, Uh, you know, like in in France, where the the Stalinists were largely in control of many of the unions. And if you called yourself a Trotskyist, you would be beaten up and, and fired. Or in a in a like a, a Bolivia um, where there there was not an established Communist Party and the Trotskyists, although there were very few of them, were able to influence uh, the revolution there in the early 50s to the point where um, leaders of the major trade unions and even the president were saying things that Trotskyists had uh, had said or written. And th- this uh, this thing that's often derided as entryism or as Trotskyists being you know shady or, or something like that is really the question of what do you do if you're a revolutionary, if you have these beliefs in this program, uh, but you don't have a lot of institutional power, that you don't have really big numbers. So, and, you know, and this was a question that comes before 1917, when the Bolsheviks were, you know, a, a minoritarian faction within the, the Russian Social Democratic Party. Uh, so th- these are useful questions today, if you're, you know, a, a communist or an anarchist or something. And, um, Although I think a lot of the Trotskyist tendencies have really burnt out because they didn't have a lot of success in Argentina, they're still a very politically relevant faction. 
um, and in, in a few other places in the world. And uh, although I'm not a Trotskyist, I think that there are aspects of that lineage that are worth remembering and recognizing that um, without for something like international coordination, uh, we're a lot worse off. There were a number of anecdotes throughout the book that I thought were so kind of amusing or like funny little or shocking kind of little things. Um, one of them, like the story of, of uh, Posada's farting uh, while giving a, giving a speech. Um, the story of Posada's kind of, he was like standing up on a, a soapbox soap um, kind of railing against Stalinism. And then some Stalinists like basically rushed him and, and pushed him down. And then they sort of all wound up getting arrested as part of the same group. And he refused to kind of like, I guess, identify the people that had pushed him, if I'm remembering that correctly. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of an interesting story. Uh, the other about him kind of bragging about having read all six volumes of Capital as well, I thought was mm-hmm. pretty funny. <laughs> the yeah, phrase, he was a funny guy. Like, yeah. um, you, would, you don't know from reading the, like, you can read some of their newspapers on Marxist.org. And it's impossible to read. It's it's horribly written. It's not concise. It's just rambling, um, and uh, it's not even like uh, strange in like a fun way. Um, but apparently, like him talking, like he was an incredibly charismatic and funny guy. He was, you know, p- people were very drawn to him, even though he would just talk for hours and hours, and you had to struggle not to fall asleep. Uh, people really liked him. And that is part of how he gained the position that he did. And even as it became very clear that this was a cult and this was, uh, you know, not working, <laughs> it led to become the vanguard of an international revolution, which was the, is the goal of Trotskyist groups, people still stuck with him. That's an aspect of him that I, I hoped to bring into the book, although it's impossible to tell right. from just reading his words. Yeah. Um, definitely difficult. I, I was going to say that it, it kind of reminded me that, so he had that recording device. I, had this, I like was reading the book when I came across that. I just thought of Posadas was like an early adopter for podcasting with his little recorder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I Definitely. Like some people just have the gift of the gab and they can just talk and talk and talk. And people are just interested in hearing them and want to hear them more, you know? Um, if... If he were around today, he would be a podcaster. And uh, <laughs> and also, you know, like part of the reason like papers are such a, uh, like a stereotypical trope of, of Trotskyism and Bolshevism is because Lenin recognized that the, the newspaper was not only a way of getting your propaganda out, but it's also a collective organizer. So you would, uh, you know, bring people in with your speeches and give them the newspaper and they would read it. And maybe if they like really liked it, they would come and join your group or whatever, but also through editing it, through get, like figuring out your editorial line um, and deciding what stories to put in, uh, you helped ideologically cohere your own group. And people don't really new- read newspapers so much anymore, or blogs for that matter. So I think podcasting and, e- and even posting. more so memes <laughs> yeah. are like a, a, yeah, posting Twitter uh, is a, a new form of media that can be used in the exact same way. Right. Um, and I think for sure, if, if today he would have a podcast and I am <laughs> very disappointed in all of the Leninist parties, particularly like all of the weird little Trotskyist sects that still exist. I really wish they had podcasts because I would love 
what the Spartacists have to say. And they, as far as I know, they just don't do it. And I, I think nobody, nobody wants to join their group because they, they don't have good podcasts or memes. <laughs> they don't have good memes. I, I mean, some of the Stalinists have really good memes. And for that reason, there's a lot of goofy little Stalinist kids out, out there. So that should be a lesson to everybody. <laughs> right. I think it was kind of cool too that it, that Posadas was kind of this, you know, mysterious figure and a lot of like the it was sort of a pseudonym for he would speak to you about Posadas in the third person and like it had sort of this almost like a, I'm thinking of uh it reminded me a little bit of like MF Doom. I don't know if you're familiar with the rapper that yeah, like, yeah. he sends the Doom bot like just the impersonators out to do the shows and right. stuff like the immediate thought that I got. But I also get in, in the vision of like a Posadas very much um, <laughs> coming inspired by Apocalypse Now, like uh, Colonel Kurtz, you know, he's like always talking into the tape recorder, these like weird apocalyptic messages. Um, so that's kind mm, of like, mm. that's kind of like the Posadas that image that I have in my head. Well, that's, I, I think the, the um, MF Doom thing might be a good way to think about him because so, sort of the conclusion I come to is that in asking the question of if it's fair to talk about Posadas in this mimetic, cartoonish way, like, is that, you know, taking too lightly the fact that this was a real person who had a real movement and with, you know, hun- thousands of militants, many of them who were tortured and died, is it like, uh, is it messed up to make light of that? Right, right. And sort of the conclusion that I came to is although we should you know, be inspired and take seriously that history of what through and what they were fighting for and the, their, their failures and their successes and so on, um, is that Posadas was, was not uh, one person. It was a collective pseudonym for their initial group that over time increasingly became the domain of one man, Homero Cristalli, uh, the person we now recognize as Posadas. And now that he's passed away and his movement has like disintegrated farther into irrelevance he has returned not as homero cristalli but as this original multiple use personality name where people are making claims about what pasadism is and what it stands for that have very little to do with the historical movement but in a way this is what pasadism was invented for that this multiple use personality um this uh anonymizer Right. Uh, sort of that, um, like the, the Intergothic Workers League meme page uses this um, overarching, commanding, fictional Lenin character who we get our orders from. Um, I saw that as being a, an interesting culmination of, uh, of the death of Leninism in general, where, you know, it's impossible, like we, we sort of need some leadership, we need some direction. Uh, and yet we don't want to be followers and we don't really want to have a leader because we don't trust leaders for good reason. So the, this fictional figurehead being used as a fictional figurehead, I thought was an interesting proposal. Right. We need a, instead of Guy, Guy Fox masks replaced with Posadas masks of some kind. That would be beautiful. <laughs> I would love that. Does, uh, from the photos, I couldn't tell, like, I don't know why, but I have this vision in my head of, of him as the guy, uh, the actor that was in like, he was in fucking Breaking Bad, the uh, bald guy that rang the bell. I forget what that actor's name is, but I don't, I don't know for some reason. Mike? Like, no, 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 no. The old, the older. Oh, he oh, couldn't the, speak, uh, he would... oh, yeah, uh, yeah. The the uh, Mexican guy. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember his name. Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
he never got he never got that enfeebled. He um, <laughs> he was you know apparently he had two heart attacks, uh, one in the late seventies, one in the early eighties, and after the second one, he passed away. But up until that moment, he you know refused to um, to chill out. He was just playing soccer and drinking mate and eating pizza. You know, slept very little, wrote his texts, and um, that probably shortened his life dramatically. Uh, but yeah, he he remained Posadas up until the the very last second he died. Even in his, I, I was able to find the, the the transcription of everything he said on his deathbed, uh-huh. and um, even until the last moment, he was having meetings and giving orders and distributing tasks and stuff. Even if, even though he was really sundowning at that moment, Posadas, fueled by apocalyptic visions, Yerba Mate, and the immortal science of Marxist Leninism, <laughs> Trotskyism, I guess too. Um, mm-hmm. What a figure. Uh, I guess, lastly, I'll, I'll let you go after this uh, one last question, if you don't mind. Is uh, sure. I'm, kind of, I'm curious about this figure of uh, Comrade High Commander that you kind of mentioned in, in the last chapter of the book or the closing chapters. Seems like a rather interesting figure. Uh, well, he. you can learn more about him through the Intergalactic Workers League and my, my interviews on the Antifada. Uh, with a comrade communicator from the Intergalactic Workers League. But from what he tells me, I've never met him myself. He is an old uh, Soviet man, I I believe Russian, uh, who now lives in the Brighton Beach area of Brooklyn. (laughs) And uh, comrade communicator came across him talking into the surf one night, apparently trying to communicate with dolphins, with aliens, or with both. And this man imparted upon comrade communicator the the wisdom of Posadas um and tasked him with starting a party against the uh orthodox Posadism uh of Posadas's son so uh comrade communicator says that uh comrade high commander is um uh trying to restore the legitimacy of Posadism through uh, the program of making contact with the space comrades, the aliens, seizing the means of detection uh, of SETI and CERN, sabotaging the apocalypse bunkers of the the elite, which is something Posadas does actually write about, countering enemy alien propaganda, um, things like Independence Day that show aliens as our enemies and encourage us to, to fight them if they arrive. And this is something that um, Dante Mazzoli, who is really the, the main ufologist, of the Posadas movement wrote about uh, after he left the movement in the 80s. He talked about this countering this kind of propaganda. So although a lot of that stuff sort of presents itself as sats, um, it was, I think, coincidentally very close to what was actually going on in the Posadas movement with, with certain people. Mm-hmm. And um, even though they, they tend to show up as uh, openly as LARPers in a certain way, at like Mayday demonstrations, for example, a lot of the other left sects there don't recognize them as LARPers. They just look like another weird left sect. <laughs> so uh, some questions about the, the nature being and satire in this moment where the left has sort of outlived its, long outlived its uh, relevance and potency. I think to that end, if you'll indulge me, I did, I, the way that you ended the book I thought was, was very great. And uh, I, I want to read this little section and then I'll, I'll let you, you pitch and get out, uh, you know, pitch your stuff and get out of here. Sure. What, what we on the left flatter ourselves in calling our political and even our revolutionary work is in fact nothing of the sort. It is more akin to religious ritual 
mass rallies, newspaper sales, endless meetings, electoral campaigning, street fighting, writing articles that no one will ever read and books absolutely no one will ever get any practical use out of. In another time, in another place, these rituals may have had a relationship to a broader movement, a broader strategy, and such stirrings have always accompanied revolutionary moments. And so, having no real conception of the thing itself, we try to grasp at revolution by playing out its inessential weirdness ad nauseum. This is what comes after farce. This is LARP. <laughs> that was so good. Yeah, that's not me. That is Comrade Communicator. Oh, sorry I did not that. write that. My um, bad. <laughs> but I, I thought, I thought it, it very well summed up um, my... Uh, my description of, of neo-Posadism. So that, that's, that was at the end of that chapter. All right. Well, I appreciate you joining the show today. I'll let you go ahead if you want to uh, plug any of any things that you're doing or the book itself, uh, please, please go ahead and then we'll close out. Sure. The, the book, please pick it up. Um, it's available from uh, Topos Books in New York. They do mail orders. Um, and it's also available from the Pluto Books website. I think you can still use code Posadas20 for a 20% discount. Um, and it's available from Amazon as well. And if you do that, just leave a review. Uh, and um, listen to the Antifada. And follow me on Twitter, at SpaceProl. And uh, yeah, I will talk about this stuff, ramble about it for an hour. So thanks a lot for having me. Anytime, anytime. Love to have you back sometime. Um, for my listeners, uh, Again, if you want to support the show, check us out at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H on Twitter at UnconsciousHH, Instagram at UnconsciousHH. But this will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour signing off. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity.
as in the block world or